following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, everyone. What a privilege it is today to be able to share God's worth with you. Before we start, I think it's best we pray that we will glorify our time here this morning with God. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning solely to worship and to glorify you, for you are the one and only true God, the God of grace and mercy, who offered his only son, Jesus, on the cross as payment in full for our sins. We are so thankful that you show us such love and grace, even though we are such a worldly people. I ask that the words I have to share this morning are spirit-led and truly say what you would want us to hear from Genesis 13 and 14. Please give the congregation the ears to hear your message, and even more importantly, give them what I could say strong, strong voices so that they may proclaim your truth to others who do not know you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go. We have a lot of train to cover this morning and in a short period of time. So I'm going to get right to the point of what I believe is the message of these two chapters. This is a story that has been and will be repeated, I think, again and again over the history of man. A story of how our fear, our pride, our self-reliance and self-gratification will often lure us down dark, dark spiritual paths. It highlights also the severe consequences that can occur when you lose sight of God's direction and instead follow the allure of worldly things that Justin just talked about. Yet it is also the story of the faithfulness of God. God is always there for his people. Let me remind you of, I think, what Justin said last week. I wasn't here, but I heard his message. And he, he said, a true believer's lapse in faith or discretion will never, never result in their loss of salvation. However, this does not mean God will ignore this lapse of faith. Quite to the contrary, Scripture tells us God's reaction can be frighteningly and unimaginably impactful and lasts for generations. Living a godly life and making daily decisions that are supported by our faith do matter. Again, let me say that living a godly life and making daily decisions that are supported by our belief does matter. Now let's move on to today's text and see if I can illustrate why Abram and Lot can go so far awry in their life and walk with God when they are faced with what appears to be simple, or what I would call no-brainer dilemmas and decisions. Last week we talked about in chapter 12, Abraham having his own little battle of disobedience and lack of faith. And if you remember in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Abraham is just promised by God that his offspring will be made a great nation and that they will be blessed. God proclaims to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So with this promise to make his seed a great nation and provide the foundation of God's kingdom, Abram, at the very young age of 75, faithfully gathers his family, including his nephew Lot, and his possessions, and follows God's command. He obediently starts his journey 
to the great unknown. He ends up, this unknown, arriving in Canaan and almost immediately encounters his first trial there, a famine in the new land. So what does God's chosen do? Does he turn to prayer about this famine? Does he seek God's direction? Trust in the promise of God's provision and prosperity? Well, not really. Abraham demonstrates he is the seed of the fallen Adam. So he looks to his own power to solve that problem. Abraham picks up his tents, takes his entourage, including his nephew Lot, and moves to greener pastures, or what he thought was greener pastures, a better neighborhood, Egypt. Kind of a bad decision, I think. I say, oops, mistake number one here. Not looking to God for direction or provision in a time of need. This decision to go to Egypt was not just some minor diversion. It was not just going to the oasis next door. It was an arduous trip, literally hundreds of miles, through difficult terrain and climate. Maybe even worse, it was in the opposite direction of God's promise. It quickly goes downhill from there, though, if you've, if you've read chapter 13. When Abraham gets to Egypt, he suddenly realized Sarai, his wife, is so beautiful that her beauty jeopardizes his life in the, in the Egyptian culture. So Abraham, what does he do? He acts in his further in his own wisdom and instructs his wife to lie about their relationship. Does this sound like a man following God's direction? Or is he looking to the world for his direction? Sure enough, Pharaoh takes Sarai, pays a very handsome bride price to quote Abraham, her brother, and pushes, puts her in his harem, causing great spiritual and emotional peril to Sarai. Again, mistake number two. Not seeking the Lord's direction and wisdom when the world's culture seems insurmountable. What is Abraham's reaction over all this? Well, we really don't see any indication in the scripture that Abraham called on God in the midst of this very difficult situation. Nor did he subject himself to God's instruction or seek God's will. Or even to seek repentance for the sake of his wife's purity or the innocent who are experiencing diseases and plagues because of his sin. On the other hand, the sudden turn of events forced Pharaoh to diligently seek out and discover what was up with Abraham. Isn't it ironic that God showed Pharaoh Abraham's sin and used Pharaoh as the tool to wreck him back to faith? Pharaoh confronts Abraham with his sin and throws him and all his entourage out of Egypt. Again, what was Abraham's response? And again, I don't think Scripture says, but we don't see anything. It seems that this, at this point, Abraham didn't even realize the turmoils his decision had caused and the problem his newfound Egyptian wealth would create in the future. So this quick review of, of chapter 12 brings us to chapters 13 and 14. And I'd say this whole section is really an excellent comparative study and warning of how important faith and relationship with God is in our daily lives and how even apparently simple daily decisions can impact not only your life, but your family's relationship with God and those who witness your life. From Scripture, we know only a few things at this time about these men. Abraham, very much like most people we find in today's churches, is, or was, a paradox, paradoxical mix of faith, pride, and self-reliance. We clearly see this in his reaction to the famine in the Promised Land. At this point, we also don't know much about Lot other than to learn he too is apparently wealthy 
and has a lust for worldly things, power, and control. We also know that both Abraham and Lot followed God's call, though, and so were men of faith. Although Abraham's behavior and Lot's compliance while in Egypt clearly showed they challenged God's laws and God's will. Peter tells us a little bit more about Lot, I think, in, in 2 Peter 2, 7-9, where he writes, and he states in verse 7, If he, God, he, God, rescued righteous Lot, so he tells us that Lot was righteous, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, that's Lot, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That could be Lot too. That could be us. Obviously, there's good news and bad news here for all of us. Lot was, was far from totally acting in faith, but God himself calls Lot righteous and rescues him from his trials. Does this give you hope? It does me. Let's just, just, let's just suffice it to say, as Paul makes it clear in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all. That's patriarch Abraham even after God's blessing. That's righteous Lot who obediently followed Abraham and God's command to Canaan. And that's you and that's me. We've all fallen short. We all have and all will falter and fail to follow God's direction on life's path. Whether the actions are ours Abrams or Lot's. We know that only the only true righteous person to perfectly walk this planet is, was, and will forever be our Savior, Jesus Christ. All of us regularly fall short of that perfect walk. Fortunately, as we will see, though, as we move through Genesis, that God uses this weakness of believers and non-believers alike for his good, even if it's to demonstrate sin's devastating impact on the individual his family, the church, or God's kingdom. Whether it is self, pride, greed, the object lesson of the patriarch, patriarch's unrighteous actions seem to always be on full display in God's word. He doesn't hide it. We are the fallen seed of Adam. But the good news is this. The door to, door to salvation is always open because of the grace and mercy of God. And through in the atoning death of his son, Jesus, on the cross for our sins. Please, uh, please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. This is not a mantra for eat, drink, and be merry, for I can ask for saving grace later. No, this is not God's plan for daily living. This is definitely not today's message and not the future message. Before I get too far afield on this topic, let's get back to Genesis 13 and 14. So Abram... Lot, their kinsmen and herdsmen, have left, their, left with their flocks and spoils of Egypt and returned to, the, returned to the promised land, returned to Canaan, and find themselves between Bethel and Ai in the land of what I call God's promise. It is here where Lot and Abraham's spiritual lives, though, converge and diverge very dramatically. Abraham comes back from his, his time of, of disobedience, I'll call it, with God, and recognizes his weakness as displayed in Egypt and renews his spiritual life by going back to the altar he had built at Bethel. Here again, Abram calls on the name of the Lord and recommits himself to God. How often do we do that when we, when we falter on our walk? I know I don't do it very often, that's for sure. 
By this point, both men had acquired wealth beyond many of our imaginations. Abraham was described as heavy with livestock, silver, gold, along with servants, female donkeys, and camels. I get kind of a kick out of the donkeys and camels because I don't think much about them, but in the day of, uh, of Abram, they were, seen to be the roman- they were seen to be romantic, sexy. They were the, what I call the Lamborghini of today's day, the cool rides of the rich and famous. Lot was also uh, very wealthy and uh, had, as it says in, in Genesis, I think 12 it was, flocks and herds and tents. So much they were both so wealthy that the land couldn't support the wealth of both men. A further complication was the tribes, the Perizzites and the Canaanites also needed this land. So as a result of all this, there is a uh, outbreak of hostility amongst the kinsmen of Lot and Abram. The irony here is that God's great material blessing upon Abram and Lot fueled this fire. Lot had not learned about Abraham's, not learned from Abram's catastrophe in Egypt. The provision and wealth only further strengthened Lot's self-reliance and pride to rely on the world, the allure of the world. A lesson for when God provides abundantly for us, maybe. Be careful when things are going really well, that world's calling and it's looking good. It's really easy to stray from our faith. So, uncle and nephew are now struggling in the land of Canaan. What happens next, we will see, is a case study of, I think, living by faith and not by sight. Abraham, God's chosen leader, with whom God made his covenant, could have asserted his positional authority very easily and taken the choicest lands for himself. But did he do this? No. Instead, he showed his faith and love in God. Abraham demonstrated his renewed faith, knowing that God had promised and blessed his descendants. He knew God would provide, so he offered Lot whatever he wanted or felt he needed, so the conflict between his kinsmen would end, would cease. Abraham says to the Lord here in verse 9, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. He's talking to Lot. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. What's Lot do? Lot hears this, and Lot lifts up his eyes, looks around, looks at the Jordan Valley, sees it's well watered everywhere, even like the Garden of the Lord, he calls it, like the land of Egypt. While Abraham's reaction showed a renewal of faith, Lot, Lot seems to put his faith in the possessions God has provided, but not in God's direction, not in God's promise. Let me repeat that. Lot puts his faith in material wealth, worldly allure, and not in God's word. Let this be a warning, I think, for all of us. Lot reacted not in faith, but by sight, what was out there for him to take. He appears to have carefully surveyed the land and selfishly chooses the best and most fruitful land for himself. Lot again acts in his own wisdom, doing what is right in his own eyes, and uh, places his trust in his own power and not in God's hands. He has not asked Abram or God for direction, as we read in verse 11, and it says, So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, thus they separated from each other. You'll see in chapter 14, this decision will cause him further strife, and we will soon see it. So what is the cause of this great discrepancy in the action and the behavior of these two believers? I don't know if it's simple or not, but I've come to the conclusion it's a relatively simple answer. A believer with great faith will have great trust in the Lord. 
While the believer who strays from God's presence and direction day by day, decision by little decision, will find disinterest and distrust creeping into their lives. They will fall back on self and quickly lose sight of God's true perspective and God's true provision for us, his word. Lot found himself distracted from dis and distrusting the word and promises of God, and so his kinsmen did also. You can see that relationship, viewers, how it affects people around you. What was left? Self. And self is a very poor substitution for God and God's word. On the other hand, Abraham found new strength and trust after his experience in Egypt, and he renewed his relationship and faith in God at Bethel. We see the results of his faith with his gracious offer to Lot to take whatever he pleased in his actions later on that we'll see in chapter 14. He knew he could trust God to provide whatever Lot chose. So chapter 13 here closes with the God, God reconfirming his covenant with Abraham, or Abram at this point. Certainly Abram did not expect or to ask for this, but subsequent to Abram's display of faith and gift of land to Lot, God again speaks to Abram, reaffirming his covenant and further defining his promise of both land and people. Lot was about to find himself with, with another opportunity to learn more life lessons, unfortunately. Rather than attaching himself to God, Abraham's chosen people, Abraham and God's chosen people, Lot searches for more riches, reputation, and associates himself with the worldly and their pagan customs and traditions. Genesis 13, 12 and 13 states that Lot dwelled in the cities of the plains and pitched his tent towards Sodom. To say this was a huge mistake would be an understatement. For, quote, the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. How could Lot make such an obviously bad decision? It's a good thing none of us are like that, right? Well, let me tell you a little story. This is, this is my story, and uh, it's not something I'm proud of, but I think it's a good story to hear because I learned from it. I had been raised in the church since an early age. Although I was a very, very busy person during my, during my work years, I attended church whenever I had the time and energy. I had all the church credentials one could imagine, and more than most, I would say, proudly. <laughs> I had memorized verses. Actually, I was, I was a regular at church. I hung out with the right church people. I memorized verses in youth groups, got certificates, pins. I even had my picture in the paper with my pastor to prove it. I was baptized. Now as an adult, I consider myself a man of faith. I'm sure Lot considered himself one also. But unlike Lot, I did not move next to wicked and sinful Sodom. Excuse me. I actually lived in it. I just happened to call it my workplace. Even worse, I was a respected leader there. Did I follow God's direction in this workplace? Share the gospel? Demonstrate a godly example? Well, if I did, it wasn't so much to honor God as it was to satisfy my ego. No, like Abraham and Lot, I am also a seed of, seed of, Ab a seed of Adam. So like many other faltering Christians, I was blinded. Yes, I rationalized that I was a good person, providing for my family really well, creating jobs for the community, attending church, and on and on and on. But like Lot, 
There was one serious problem. It was the allure of the, of the world. Everything I did was motivated out of pride and self-reliance. That became evident pretty quickly if you got in my way, especially my upward climb and my pride. I didn't see it. I did what I did not for God, but for me. You could see it in my spiritual life. Was I the spiritual leader at home? Was I adequately giving my time and money to God for his work? Was I spending time in the word and prayer? No, no, no. But I was going to church very regularly. Wasn't that enough? No, no, and no. Well, like the story, like Lot's story, it gets worse. It doesn't get better. When you live and work in Sodom and your Christian foundation is not consistent and solid, it is very easy for your life to look more and more like that of the fleshly world. I didn't even realize it was happening. By association with the worldly things and flesh, I had become exactly like the world I was immersed in. I was making decisions grounded in ego, pride, out of fear, but not in the spirit. If you can name an ego-related sin, I probably did it. Sad to say. Thank goodness, though, God is faithful to his people. Here's the good news again. Even people like me who have major falterings in their faith. I cannot say God's path back was an easy time for me, but through a series of events and trials, including a boss who must have come literally from hell. By the way, he really liked me, which is really, really scary. <laughs> I had a bout with cancer. I had faithful praying friends, a pastor who was consistently, relentlessly faithful to God's word, and a faithful, loving wife of a not-so-lovable husband. God shepherded me back and demonstrated his faithfulness to me. This renewal of faith for me would not have happened if our God was not faithful to his people, and he's faithful to all of us, even his wandering sheep, like me. Maybe just one word of wisdom here out of all that story. The allure of the flesh in the world is very, very seductive. It is a lot easier to learn from God's word and mistakes of others like Lot and Dan Langham than to live through and deal with the results of your own mistakes. I can testify to that. Unfortunately, I wasn't so smart, so smart to learn from others and learn from the word. So as you can see, our studies in Genesis is not some irrelevant Old Testament tale, but is a truly modern lesson for us to learn from. If you look closely, you may even see a reflection of yourself in the worldly culture we live in. I know I do, and I did. We better get back to the text, though. Next, we see more of the consequences of Lot's decisions to live as a believer, flirting with the allures and values of an ungodly world. Honestly, this lesson, as horrible as it is in, in chapter 13 and 14, is only minor compared to what is later to come for Lot. But that's such as the world's allure. Chapter 14 appears to be broken into two sections, verses 1 through 12, which recount a battle of five kings of Jordan with the four invading, with four invading, invading Babylonian kings. Well, the second half of 14 recounts, I think, God's response to this battle using Abraham as an example of godly living. Prior to the events of chapter 14, there had evidently been a previous conquest of these parts of Canaan by the kings, by the, uh, kings that are mentioned in the first, five verses, or first yeah, four or five verses of this chapter. I'm not going to go into those names because I would just butcher them. But the five kings of Jordan Valley had already been paying taxes for many years to the Babylonian monarchs who were about to attack. Apparently, they were refusing now to follow the Babylonian authority. So with their strong armies, 
the Babylonian condition, Babylonian coalition make short work of the Jordan, Jordan kings, quickly overpowering them in the Jordan Valley and gaining control over trade routes to Babylonia and reinstalling what I would call Babylonian order and taxes. When we realize the distance from the Euphrates to the Jordan, it's literally hundreds and hundreds of miles, we have to admit the establishment of such an empire by the Babylonian kings was no mean feat. But why did this happen? Well, let's watch God's lesson unfold here for us. The result of the battle was a devastating loss for the Jordan kings. Their losses were great. They lost their land. They lost their food. They lost many people, including the capture of Lot and ironically all of his possessions that he was so proud of. The victors took all the possessions of their conquested territory. But that is not the end of the story. Let's look at the second half of chapter 14 where Abram responds, apparently looking to God in his faith, and rescues Lot and the, and, and the people. It is an interesting look at how the fleshly world and God's people interact and compare. At this point, we get some interesting information about Abram's position in the land where he is settled. We read in verse 13 that he had become allies with some of the Amorites. Evidently, they had accepted him and pursued God's will, as it is thought that some of these people worship God as Abram did. As we will see later, there were several pockets of believers throughout this country. It appears Abram lived it though as a stranger in the country. He was called the Hebrew. And uh, I think that's verse 14 or 15. And thus identified as an outsider or immigrant. In contrast, Lot had to try to be accepted by, Lot tried to be accepted by the inhabitants of the city of Sodom to the point where he had moved within the city itself. So Abram didn't associate, Lot starts to associate. But the people, the, one thing that's good news about Lot is that the people of the city always considered him a stranger. In chapter 19, we're not going to go to 19, obviously we're in 14, 13 and 14. We read that the men of Sodom said, this fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge, that being Lot of the people of Sodom. He never had enough in common with him to be accepted. That is probably why Peter in 2 Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. But one thing to remember here, the only way to be accepted and to have unity with fallen men is to join them together in the family of faith of Jesus Christ. Unity cannot be achieved, I'll say it again, cannot be achieved by joining and accepting the ways of culture or of the flesh. The history told here in the Old Testament illustrates to us the truth. In a certain way, it is a compliment to Lot's testimony, however weak it may have been, that he never, more, never was more than an alien in the city, in the city of Sodom that he was never fully accepted despite his great wealth and presence. Lot doesn't have much that could serve as an example to follow, but at least the word of God gives him credit for what he did have. I've gotten a little off track here, so let me get back to chapter 14 and what's going on there, where we find God acting through Abraham, defeating the Babylonian, Babylonian kings and with great numbers of men, with a mere 318 men. This is unimaginable. Just think of the size of the Babylonian and five of those, those four kings' uh, armies. To me, it's a clear miracle and a message that much can be done with little if you place your need in the hands of God and not the world. God restored the people to their land 
everyone and everything was returned back to the original owners, including Lot and all of his possessions, while Abram himself kept nothing. Instead of making Abraham and his men, instead of taking, sorry, Abraham and his men returned all the goods to Sodom and Gomorrah, refusing the king's reward of all the, all the spoils of war. Abraham instead received something more important, more valuable, a blessing from God through Melchizedek, king of Salem, or what is known as Jerusalem. Melchizedek's name translates to king of righteousness and is called the priest of God most high. He appears out of nowhere in the midst of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah to come to Abram, bringing elements of communion, wine, and bread, also the welcoming of royal, of royal people. Hebrews expounds a little bit further on this chapter, because I don't know what this is all about. I was trying to understand what, what this Melchizedek was all about. And it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. So who was this Melchizedek? Was this king and priest the pre-incarnate Jesus, Son of God? Well, I'll leave this answer up to you. There's a lot of people looking at this that are much more smarter than me, and they still can't agree. But whoever he was, whoever Melchizedek was, know that God is always near to those who seek him. Even in the midst of the most wicked people in wicked places on earth. So what's Abraham's response? In grateful thanks to God, he hasn't taken anything, but he voluntarily ties 10% of all his possessions as a gift to God through Melchizedek. What a difference in actions between those with faith in God and those pursuing self-driven worldly goals. So let me try to summarize the last half of chapter 14. 14 brings out a strong contrast between the kings and Abram, as well as between the kings of Babylon and the kings of Salem. Whereas the kings are focused on military strength, who has a bigger coalition? Who can I take land and take from what can I take from each other? Abraham, relying on God, wins an unlikely victory with a very small band of men, but refuses to take anything for himself. Instead, he and Melchizedek give to each other. Melchizedek does not demand anything, but simply gives and receives freely in return. Thus, the chapter illustrates two different attitudes that are really two ways of life that we see. The attitude of the kings and rulers of this earth their followers who retaliate and selfishly take from each other to gain more wealth, more power, the ways of the world, and the attitude of the king of peace and his followers who look to save those in need, unselfishly giving to each other, thereby demonstrating love, which is the heart of God. So Abraham made his faith in God clear by rejecting all worldly rewards from the king of Sodom, his reward being the blessing he has already received and the blessing from Melchizedek. This is where chapter 14 ends, but the story will continue next week. This is more than a mere history lesson, though, and I think we've talked a little, a lot about the object lessons through the, throughout this uh, message today, but I want to focus on two points that I think are good takeaways from this lesson of Genesis. For me, first, put God in the center of your daily decision-making, and second, Make sure daily living reflects God's word and the Holy Spirit's direction. 
Let me go just into this just a little bit, and I'll, I'll, get, I'll wrap this up because I know I'm taking a little long. But put God in the center of daily decision-making. Like Abraham and Lot, every day we make many simple decisions that impact our relationship with God as well as influence others. These simple decisions can be driven by worldly desires or by the Spirit and God's Word. We've seen through Genesis 13 and 14 how this works out when pride, self-reliance, fear, or greed rule our behavior. We've seen from my story how it works out. Realize that these daily, these daily decisions really do matter. I won't kid you, it's often a struggle. As we've seen, even the people who are some of God's most faithful people, who are some of, uh, from the Bible, they struggle with making faith-based day-to-day decisions. Look at Abraham and Lot here. And there are many other stories too. Read about Moses. Read about King David. Read about Peter. Like them, we find ourselves getting into trouble. We usually recognize the problem, but we don't always take time to look for God's solution or to ask for direction or even rely on what we already know is the right thing in the right direction. When you are making that everyday living decision and you start to rely on yourself, take a lesson from the patriarch's missteps. Stop, take that time to pray and seek God's guidance before you do something. The second point I want to make is make sure your daily living reflects God's word and the Spirit's direction. Christ asks us to lead by example and to disciple in love. Make sure you do that in your daily life. Paul in 1 Corinthians calls us not to be a stumbling block for our brethren. Your decisions and behaviors are watched closely by believers and unbelievers alike. Make sure you're looking to God and not yourself for your basis of daily living. You can easily end up like Abraham was in Egypt or even Lot or even me. Look to the Holy Spirit for guidance and do not let the world minimize our faith. Let me say it again. Don't let that worldly allure minimize our faith. Stay focused on God. I think Apostle Paul summarizes this really well. And I'm going to wrap up with this. We should, how we should live our daily lives in 2 Corinthians 5.20. And I really do want to end this message with Paul's words. Paul tells us, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. That's to others. Let us not forget this simple but profound fact. Let us pray. Lord, please protect us from a world that seems to, be, to grow ever and ever darker. Protect us from those alluring things that are so attractive to the seed of Adam. We ask that you give us wisdom to not succumb to and adopt to the identity of the fleshly world, but rather help us be faithful servants, not followers of the people of this world, but followers of you and all you created us to be. Let us not succumb to the worldly pressures of others, but keep us strong in your witness for you, Lord. Let no, let no words sway our love from you. It is your word and your grace that is our rock and our salvation. Allow us to be confident wherever we go in knowing we are in you. For we know, as Philippians 1, 6 states, that he who began a good work in us, your people, will carry it on to the completion until the day Christ Jesus returns. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.